Welcome to Uncomfortable Is Okay, where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone, navigating challenge, and doing the hard things that make life worth living. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. Uncomfortable Is Okay is brought to you by Health Mentors. Health Mentors is a performance well-being company that helps change makers dial in their health and improve their performance in the middle of a chaotic world. We offer one-on-one health mentoring services, as well as a range of workshops and workplace solutions, all the way up to supporting organizations with their well-being strategy. You can find out more at healthmentors.nz or get in contact with Chris at healthmentors.nz. Callum McCurdy, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Everyone listening, I'm joined today by Callum McCurdy, who is a speaker, an author, a trainer, a a whole lot of things. And currently you're working on a book called Tilt, Thinking Differently About Thinking Differently. He is the host of the You, Me and ADHD podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. He is a neurodivergent rock star and is really passionate about kind of helping people understand neurodivergence and its, its ability to be a superpower in life and also in business as well. Callum, mate, welcome. Hello. Hey, thanks, Chris. Cool intro. Cool to be here. I remember we connected a number of years ago and just sort of put off that you invited me here and I kind of put it off. And so it's nice that you didn't uh, let up and you said, dude, you're coming on. And so here, here I am. Yeah. Very, very cool. I don't know about this rock star business because I can't play a single instrument. And I certainly can't sing to save myself. So I reckon we skip over that bit. <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of rock stars that actually can't, mate. Yeah. There's auto tune now as well, so you can yeah. use that. Yeah, well, I hope you've got it on this podcast too. So <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's the editing software afterwards. Awesome. <laughs> oh, very cool to be here. Nice to see you too. Callum, I always like to just start off with a little bit of background, mate. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Okay. So originally from Timaru in the deep south, east coast of South Island, and grew up there. It's fairly standard sort of upbringing or what I thought was. And you did all my schooling there. And then we, I went overseas actually for a year, halfway through what was then seven form, year 13, and went to Europe, stayed in Belgium, had a great time over there. And that was a cool opportunity to do some good stuff. And then came back here and went to, originally went to Polytech because I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to save the world. And uh, it quickly discovered there that I needed a bit of a life of my own before I got into other people's lives, but was always fascinated by people. And I'm a bit of a, maybe call me a stalker or a voyeur or all these things that we have really bad connotations and definitions for, but I don't mean it in a creepy way. I just love observing people and people's behavior. And so I ended up doing honors in geography, sort of human geography, sociology, anthropology, that sort of thing. So it was why people live where they do and what they do while they're there. And that was what I thought was, it was really just an excuse to go to university uh, here in Dunedin, which I am now in Forty Dunedin. And I just, I just loved the ability to look at people and to watch people and to see people's quirks and differences, but never really understand why that was. And then we moved to Wellington, had almost 10 years there in the public service. And I sort of fell into an HR job there by applying for the wrong role. But 
uh, yeah, got, got into that. And so I've had this background in, in HR and leadership development, culture development mainly. I have worked for uh, Deloitte, consulting with them. Uh, I've been sort of moving my way up and was the HR director of a, a not-for-profit all here in Dunedin, but doing a lot of travel as well. But I've been working for myself for about sort of seven years. So we moved back to Dunedin's ooh, 14 years ago or so. Uh, but I've done a lot of travel since. Never moved back to Timaru. Parents are still there, though. Is that uh, on the card someday? No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Sorry to all the listeners in Timaru. Yeah. No, that's scarred from, from life there. And I also think that you, when you move away uh, and you see the world, you see the opportunities, you also look back on your view of the world. At least that's what I do. Your view of the world being all of Timaru as you grow up. And they, while I've never felt I sort of fitted in there, I thought it was because it was a very diverse place. But then when you get out of any place and you look back from where you are to where you were, that there's just so much, there's a lack of diversity there as well, right? And it's the same here in in Dunedin, but it's slightly more diverse than Timaru. Wellington's more diverse than, than Dunedin. Clinton more diverse than Wellington, etc. And then, you know, you skip overseas. And so it's sort of, sort of concentric circles, I guess, of diversity. And the diversity I'm really interested in isn't sort of visible diversity, this stuff around ethnicity and gender and, and whoever else. Although they're all very important things. I, I'm more interested in people's quirks and weirdness and their... The, the different ways of experiencing day-to-day life with the world and, and work and those sort of things. So you, you talked about neurodivergence and that's just an umbrella term, which is a bit of a misnomer actually, because it suggests that everybody, that there are some people who have a different brain from other people. And that's the truth for, truth for everyone. Like everybody has a different brain. No two brains are the same. Some people's brains are wired just a little bit differently. And as a result, that means they may behave a bit differently, but certainly they experience the world a bit differently, but that difference is often largely hidden and they have labels that are are based on deficits and disorders. So people tend to hide what's going on for them. They mask. There's most people, roughly 80% of neurodivergent people are undiagnosed. They have no idea what's going on for them as well. But with my HR background, I like to think of myself as a bit of a bridge between the neurodivergent world and the world of work, which is based on that sort of middle of the, the bell curve. Uh, all our people management systems, the way we run processes within most organizations is all very traditional, but it's from that one size fits most approach. And the people like me and people I love to bring together and work with fit it. I live and work at the ends of the bell curve. So those sort of things don't make any sense. Like it was my job as an HR director to be this sort of policy chief and to be the promoter and champion of these best practice processes where none of them ever made sense to me, but everybody loved these things. And so I had to fake sort of appreciation for how good these things were. But I always questioned the validity of them because to me, they just didn't make any sense. I've that all through my career. When you say everybody, Callum, are you talking about all of the leadership that was developing these policies and procedures or the, the general kind of workforce that yeah. these policies and procedures were applied to? Well, the general workforce, really, but also also leadership. When, so what HR does is, like, this is the employee life cycle, how we, how we find 
how we attract and find people, how we recruit them, how we induct them into the organization, how we manage them and help them grow and develop, how we let them know around expectations and how they're going and how they're progressing, manage their performance, whether it's good or bad or just in between, um, how we exit people, all these sorts of things. So there's all these sort of processes. And there's a generally agreed and accepted way of doing those things. Some of that's referred to as best practice and that gets added to and researched and, and tweaked a little bit, but they're all mainly widely accept, accepted processes, yeah? Or different just sort of iterations of the same thing. But that same thing never made sense to me. And I, so that, that was in, in the workplace, but also... There are things in day-to-day life that also don't make sense to me. And when I say don't make sense to me, it means what I mean by that is I struggle to do them in a way that most people tend to do. So there's sort of neurodivergent people and then there's neurotypical, which is just, you know, the, what is more common and typical doesn't necessarily mean like neither is positive or negative. It's just different, right? So it's really about neuro difference and some things just never made sense. I like, here's something that doesn't make sense to a lot of people and it's like no difference if you're neurodivergent or neurotypical. Psychometric testing, like that, that seems just really, really bizarre. And like I'm yet to find a person whose job it is to predict whether the next symbol is a square, a triangle or a circle, right? And so yet we put these people through these, this battery of assessments and that's supposed to suggest whether they're going to be good in a role. Now that makes no sense to me, but also that was, that is the one thing that, that found me out, I guess, that made me think, huh, actually I can't cover this up. We were in a, I was the HR director of a large not-for-profit and we were looking at using some psychometric testing. We needed a guinea pig. So I stuck up my hand. I thought these look fun. Went through them and thought I'm acing these. Like these are, there's no validity in these because it's just too easy. And when we got the results back, it was as if someone had given me all the answers and I'd chosen to ignore them. Like it was a disaster, an absolute disaster. And I was thinking, and and now I can look back on that and go, it's really intriguing that I thought I was doing really, really well. And I understood this and I was nailing it. And then for that to not be the case. And I simply couldn't explain that. And because that was, they were designed for as that one size fits most and that most people fit within particular categories. And I was at like the lower, very, very bottom percentile for all three of those assessments and numerical reasoning, verbal reasoning, which I think I'm okay at. Like I always knew I was rubbish at maths, but I'm pretty good at talking my way out of things, right? And that's what I think verbal reasoning is, but also I'm really good at pattern recognition. And yet for some reason with these symbols, I couldn't, couldn't do that. And I couldn't explain that yet. And what that was, was this deep feeling of shit. People have found me out at last because uh, all through my career, I'd changed jobs and after about three years. And what that is about, I used to say that I would get bored and so I'd look for something else or I'd fulfilled my expectations around that. So I started to look for a, another role. What actually happened was after about 18 months, people would start to cotton on to the fact that I couldn't do some things some really, really basic things. And I would spend the next 18 months looking for another job, especially running from work, hiding in, uh, hiding in the bathroom when I had to do some certain things, working extra hours just in order to, to cope. So the things that I, I'm really ranting and waffling here, Chris, so jump in and go, look, this is not interesting. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. Carry, carry on. Keep talking. Okay. Keep talking. 
you're, you're, you have my full permission to cut in and go, let's change tack. So things that I struggle with, I've always known that I was dyslexic. I also have dyscalculia, which is the numbers version of dyslexia. If we were to sort of dumb it down a little bit, which it's not, it's also not a reflection of intelligence. People who are dyslexic and dys dyscalculate tend to be above average intelligence. We just don't learn the way that we are traditionally taught in schools, right? And so I have, and dyslexia is really about orientation and disorientation and confusion as a result of not being able to, not being able to, to, to view voice or write things in a, in a correct sequence. So I have what's referred to overseas, but not here in New Zealand as sequential dyslexia. That means that if you give me a list of three things to do, by the time you get to the second one, the first one's a bit, bit hazy, get to the third one, one doesn't exist. So that's not just lists of things, but it's sequences and steps in a process. So I'm yet to cook success, successfully following a recipe. Uh, I either miss out a step, regardless of how hard, hard I try or I miss out a key ingredient. I ATMs, even FPOS machines, you know, I know the sequence of things there, but they mess me up. When you go into a, a workplace and you have to sign in on one of those iPads and you go through who, you, who you're meeting with, the health and safety checkbox, that sort of thing, checking in at the e-kiosks with Air New Zealand. I travel every week. And so I have to do that at least two, sometimes four times a week. I know all the screens that are going to come up, but I lose like my place in that and the sequence of those things. And so I start to panic and I think, when are you going to ask me whether I pack my own bags or if I pack ammunition? Because I have no working memory and that no work, that lack of working memory, which is holding on to the processing of what's going on in real time in the moment, what that's attributed to is I also have ADHD, which is looking back at really apparent now in my childhood, I would have back in the day been diagnosed with ADD because I'm not hyperactive, but ADD has been sort of consumed into this other category, bigger, broader category of D. We have sort of three types. There's inattentive, hyperactive, or both. And I tend to have both. I've been diagnosed with, with both, I guess, the collective of ADHD. But what that means is that I do have tr trouble focusing on some things, but also I can hyper-focus on the things that I'm really interested in. But the, also the combination of my neurodiversity, so dyscalculia, dyslexia, ADHD, and probably some other things as well, what that means is that I have a really unique experience of the world. And so often there are, sometimes they call them comorbid. It's a horrible uh, word, it's, it's, but it's rubbish. No one's ever died of dyslexia. However, so that coexistence is how I prefer to, to talk to it. That means that we have, sorry, there's lots of people have multiple, sorry, coexisting conditions. And that means that everybody has a rather, rather unique experience of neurodivergence. It also means that some experiences and behaviors are heightened and some sort of lessened or, or watered down a little bit as well. But what it means for me, some big things that I've noticed is that I have a, a, a 3D videographic memory that's tagged to emotion. So if I feel a strong emotion, I essentially take a film of everything that's happening in that event and that's locked in. And I can replay that at any time and see all the detail of what's going on in that scene. So name all the shops, you know, in the ground in the first level down Lampton Key, regardless of which way we walk, walk, that sort of thing. So it's rather useless information, but really good for like quizzes or random questions. So I don't actually hold on to facts, but what I do is I hold on to, I guess, experiences. 
mm. as well. So I'm rubbish with names, but I'm really good with faces. And also what that allows me to do weirdly is, and I think this is attributed to my dyslexia is because a lot of people with dyslexia have a really deep impacts. And so I see people's energy and that doesn't mean I see heat, what hazes or, you know, sparkles or crazy lights or anything like the that. The purple well, aura I, that sits around yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I wonder what that was. But what I do see is how people show up, right? And so I use that as a, I use that in the work I do, sort of running workshops and speaking from the stage and that sort of thing. And so I like to point that out and highlight that. And it's just saying what I notice. And that tends to be things that people don't usually talk about, right? And so, so that's, that, you know, that's good fun. I also have no idea which direction clockwise is. Like I can't imagine that, but I've got no problem with left and right. And so there's all these little little quirks that that come with it and people go well that must be troublesome or a bit problematic and it is but the thing is because neurodiversity isn't something that needs to be cured and it's not something that's caused by an illness or necessarily an event sometimes ptsd is included in neurodiversity because some people's events or, or an event is that traumatic that it sort of permanently rewires aspects of the brain but I was born this way, right? And so I've always experienced the world this way. So I've had to just make some stuff up. And so that's what we do. We mask and hide some things, but we also hack life all the time, mm -hmm. every single day. And that creativity means that I'm really good in, in, in change and in new events. Yet I rely really heavily on some basic routines just to get me up and get me out the door. I can't tie my shoelaces the way most people do. I've just never been able to figure that out. But I've got, regardless of how many people try and show me, but I can tie my shoelaces. I just do it my way, right? And so we just, and that's a really easy thing, but we just come up with all these hacks and different ways of, of coping and being seen to cope in the world as well. So it's kind of, kind of cool. It's just different. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Like I've, I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed listening to you despite you wanting me to cut in there. I think it's. I think it's been really helpful to, for me to kind of hear how you talk. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, some of the stuff that you were saying comes up for them as well, mm. especially kind of a, around you saying 80% of people who have some kind of neurodivergence are, are undiagnosed as well. Mm. You probably recognize something in themselves that you might've talked about there as well. I know there are kind of a couple of things there for me. Whether that's because of sleep debt or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> quite often. But Callum, at the moment, like you're you're quite aware of you and how you operate and and kind of the ins and outs of your neurodivergence to use to use that term. Yeah. What were you like before you had that awareness? Like how did you feel as a person before you came to this realization of like this is who I am, this is how I operate? That's a cool question. And you know, you know, imposter syndrome, yeah. like think of that on steroids. And I think that's what neurodivergent people who are undiagnosed, but also those who are diagnosed because we've had, we live lives like that. And that's a big generalization, right? And some people don't, but I would say most people, and I don't think I'm necessarily speaking out of school here. Most people who are neurodivergent, especially those who are undiagnosed, spend their lives as the masters of disguise. Where hiding, making up for lots of micro failures every single day. And the not being able to 
change habits is one of the most frustrating parts about me, regardless of how much I try. And yet I do rely on routine and structure and, and habits, despite being what, a, a really chilled out person. And I think that's one of the funniest things looking back on how I used to be, because I haven't changed much about myself. I just accept a lot more now. And I work on some, some strategies to sort of keep me functioning as an adult, as a parent, as a, as a friend, et cetera. But looking back, it was just simply a, a case of getting through each day. You know how I always thought that I was an introvert actually, because I would be exhausted at the end of the day, thinking I got my energy from spending time away from people. I actually just needed to get out the door to get somewhere and like put my back against the wall and just breathe out and go, I made it through. And that's what I mean by the imposter system, syndrome on, on steroids. Like it's that I was, lots of people used to say, you're just so calm and you're so chilled out. And yet I never understood how they weren't seeing the chaos that goes on in my mind. My brain clearly, I mean, my face clearly doesn't display the level of chaos that, that goes on. And because it, I think in images, there's a million ideas, not a million, thousands of ideas every minute sort of thing, uh, easily distracted by a whole lot of, whole lot of things. But I also love that about myself too. Like I've really, I remember the first day that I took, I started on some, on methylphenidate, which is, which is a sort of a generic ADHD drug. And I didn't think it was working. And I drove down to this local cafe that I like to go to and parked across the street. And usually what I do is I play on the traffic. Like I just, I see a car, I go, that's ages away. So I zip in front of it. Yeah. And this day I got to the middle of the road and there was a car coming. And so I waited there. Now, what would have usually happened had I waited for the car, because I sometimes do that, is I would have redesigned the shop front and the building next to it, probably done some renovations on it as well. In my mind, I would have rated all the cars, oh, sorry, all the cars that are, that are, are parked out outside in terms of ones I like the color of, the brands, what I'd like to be seen on, that sort of thing. And so done all this in the three to five seconds that it would have taken for that car to punch me. But the, this day, I just stood there and I was instantly bored and nothing happened. And I thought, yuck, <laughs> if this is... If this is what being able to focus is like, I don't like it because I actually really love my ability to, to, for ideas to pop and for, for some of those to be utterly ridiculous, but to go down a track of, well, what if, right? And, and so there's some endless creativity in there, which I always had, but I've always had to hold that back as well. So I think what people really enjoyed about working with me was that I was just fun and relaxed and chilled out and nothing was ever a problem, right? Except I would have to work extra hard after hours trying to make up for the stuff that I couldn't actually do. So I was all, uh, very much a people pleaser and a, and a yes person. And so I wouldn't say no to anything, but end up doing lots and lots of extra work because things like working on a spreadsheet. One thing I had to do, one of my early jobs in HR was map out and look at the relativities of the pay across an organization of about 10,000 people. I, I'm hopeless with spreadsheets. And by hopeless with spreadsheets, I don't mean, oh, I can't do some of the formulas and pivot tables and whatever else. I actually can't marry up rows or columns because they move around, right? And, and the numbers don't stay put. So having 
to hide that, not knowing why that was the case for me, meant that I had to work extra hours in the weekend, that sort of thing, just to do what other people would class as probably the bare minimum. So I worked really hard just to be average. <laughs> that's what my life was like beforehand. Yeah. Wow. That's sounds very challenging at times. I, I love some of what you're saying there as well. I think like I, I have a whole lot of ridiculous ideas pop into my head as well. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then you kind of stop and look at it for a bit and you're like, oh no, that's not cool. Right. But another, another thing that you, you were talking about there is the the internal chaos that you have going on and, and through having a podcast and having conversations like this with uh-huh. a lot of different people and also kind of having these conversations in real life. I think the vast majority of people, whether, whether they're neurotypical as well, also have a certain amount of internal chaos that is going on for them as well. Mm-hmm. Like I've had conversations with quite a few guys around feelings of anxiety. Yep. And like, if you look at us from the outside, we're reasonably relaxed typical mm-hmm. Kiwi guys, mm-hmm. but have mm-hmm. have had some challenges with anxiety. Like for myself, I've had a couple of panic attacks a few years back and like the average person on the street, you're like, oh, he's a pretty chill dude. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it, one thing that we, I think that we see is that like when you look at someone else, you're just seeing, you're seeing the outside, you're not seeing yeah. what's, what's going on internally and, and I was having a conversation on the podcast with a lady called Jen Brown, who likened it to a duck. Like the duck sits nicely on top of the water, but underneath the water, the legs are just going like crazy. And I think like having conversations like these allow us to get under the duck Mm. and like talk about the the chaos that's that's happening internally for us, no matter who we are. And I think and and normalize it actually that is there at some points for for all of us and a lot of other people are going through it and a lot of other people have probably have some cool strategies mm-hmm. for helping to harness that and and whether that's kind of move it out of the way so that they can do something or whether that's mm-hmm. like tie some horses onto the chariot so they can just ride it yeah um, yeah i think that's like that that's super real it's relevant I find it really, really fascinating as well. I can remember doing a, when COVID first hit, I put this post out. It was just a video. I was sitting in my car, post on LinkedIn, where I said, look, what, what's everyone's problem? Like, chill out. Because the thing is with ADHD, we're always in chaos, right? And so when we're in chaos, everybody else is calm. But when everybody else's level of chaos or a crisis hits, people rise to our level of chaos. And so it's people who have ADHD who are really good first responders, who are great at, at triaging what needs to happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm great in a crisis, but I'm rubbish if you give me lots of time to organize something as well. But of course, that sort of fades as well as we get into, well, what is this new version of normal? And I think this is the, the tale of of COVID now, that it's either started or it has um, been that straw that broke the camel's back in terms of people who are under pressure anyway. We've got, it's not a decade, it is now a generation of, I think, mental ill health effects as a result of COVID. We're into our third year, so there are some people who are doing their third year of NCEA affected by COVID. They haven't had a fair crack. It's been sort of their wartime. And and I think that's on the on the back of the 
as, as you sort of alluded to, Chris, the, the Kiwi male way of doing things is just to hide some stuff and not talk about it. Put up that brave face. I'm not the most manly bloke there is. And yet I still try to convince people that everything's okay when it's not okay. Like asking and accepting help is a real, real issue for me. Which is crazy because I'm like, and I think this is also the extension of me hiding and masking everything is because I'm always endlessly interested in other people and asking really good questions of other people. So they don't ask those of me. Right. And that's my, the extension of me hiding all my neurodivergence and other stuff that goes and has been going on for me for years. I'm really used to paying attention to other people and to helping them just don't do it to me. Right. And I think that's really standard and typical for a lot of times. And I think a lot of it as well comes back to not just us hiding it from other people, it is also us trying to hide it from ourselves. And it's not until you start to kind of have those conversations and, mm-hmm. and turn that gaze internally to have a look at yourself and, mm-hmm. and figure things out like obviously you have yeah. to, to a greater degree than a lot of people, that you start to be honest with yourself about, yeah. hey, actually... I can't push this away anymore mm. because mm-hmm. it's leading to all of these these other things, these other challenges that are popping up in my life because I'm I'm ignoring it. I'm trying to squash it down. Mm. That, like, firstly, we've got to be honest with ourselves before we can start being honest with other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you, I, I think, hiding neurodiversity, you manage people's relationship like you sorry you manage your relationship with everybody and so you play this game of oh it's not about reputation but it's almost about brand like what's what what are people's how we get how have i positioned myself with everybody being everybody being every individual as well and so what did we do last time and how did we do that i just became this master of, of managing people's perception of me right and sometimes that fell over and so i just had to run from people as well right and so and that's that's a heavy load there's an emotional toll on that there's a a a mental health toll there's a physical toll of that as well and but i also realized pretty early on that i'm not particularly special or unique there must be a whole lot of people who who are, are hiding what's going on for them right and as a result the and I think also that because I know workplaces really well, I thought, well, that, that's where I could help people to be themselves by helping organizations develop cultures where it's all good for people to come and be their own, be their own selves, for us to develop leaders who aren't afraid of leading difference as well. Because looking back on my career, especially my early career in, in HR, I know that there was this there was an example where we had to manage a person out of the organization because the manager didn't like being challenged by this person. The person at fault was this weak leader who couldn't put up with the challenge. The person who was doing things challenging was clearly doing this challenging. Looking back, I think was quite clearly autistic. And, and, and I, I feel really shit about that. Like I, I affected somebody's, possibly their life outcomes. I don't know. They might've got a job straight away, but they might not have. We got this person out of the organization because I thought I was doing my job, helping and representing this manager. And yet what I was doing was effectively saying, you being yourself is not right or not safe in this organization. We don't want people like you here. 
And like, this has been probably the first two or three years of my career, but I still think about that and I go, what? That's rubbish. Like that is absolutely rubbish for us to put up with this concept of, of fit because recruiting for fit gets interpreted as by weak managers, I think, as recruiting people with minds like mine. Who's easy to manage? Uh, who do I click with? Who do I get? As opposed to where are the gaps in our team in terms of the way we approach problems and experience the world? And, and how can we fill those gaps with uh, a bit of difference? Because difference is fine. Because we're, you know, rather than try to create the, our organizations, which are just the sea of sameness, we get a whole lot of difference in there. And lots of organizations are working on visible difference there, thinking that you know, if we have different looking people around the board table or the executive team or on project teams, that sort of thing, that performance is going to go up. There's no research to suggest that. Like that's never been backed up by any evidence. What it does mean when we have some difference around there is that we create the opportunity for greater performance if we make use of that difference. So we've still got to do the work. We can get diversity around the table, but we still have to do the work to include those people and make them feel like they belong, that they want to contribute what's different about them. And the, I think now's the time where we are, okay, it's not just about your background, but it's actually about how you experience the world and approach life and work. And we do that in our minds. We do that in our hearts. And so that's the stuff I'm, I'm trying to do is how do we harness that hidden difference. And now's the time to do it as well, especially around COVID where we're, you know, people are kind of going back into the workplace or, or not, or fully going back into the workplace. We go, what's the stuff we never want to do again? What's the stuff that really pissed us off about the way we worked? What don't we want to take back in, into the office? But also we've got a bunch of problems, which are brand new. We've got a whole lot of unsolved problems from, you know, pre-COVID times as well. So I think people who think differently can, can help solve some of those problems as well. And when we allow those people to be themselves and come to work to help solve those problems, what we're also solving is the potential or an aspect of the potential mental health decline for, you know, 10 to 20% of our population. And when you've got all that undiagnosed neurodivergence, like that, that is actually everywhere. Every workplace, every workforce has a cohort of neurodivergent individuals. We just don't know who they are largely. And what works for neurodivergent individuals in terms of treating them like an individual and a, and a, and a real person who's valued works for everybody, right? And so taking this approach is great culturally for the entire organization. And that, oh, that's a bit of a, a tangent because we started talking about mental health and, and speaking openly and owning yourself, right? And accepting who you are. I don't think it's a tangent at all. I think I think it's completely related, and I really like where you went with that. And I guess for for people listening to this, and maybe some of the the leaders out there as well, is like how can we start to think about embracing our own difference and utilizing that as a as a superpower for us? Yeah, it's like everybody's different, right? We have this. If you look at the like the curated Instagram lifestyle that people are putting out there, like what we post or like or whatever on LinkedIn professionally, how we are putting ourselves out there to the world, I think also is a big cue of, like if we were to examine that for ourselves individually and go, actually, how am I, how am I really inside myself and how do people, how do I show or present myself to other people through social media? Like 
And the bigger the difference there is, I think the bigger the need to take a look at yourself and go, okay, why am I doing this as well? And I think sometimes that's about just wanting to feel normal, but nobody knows what normal is, right? You know, looking at the Kardashians going, I want that lifestyle. Like that, not even they have that lifestyle. Like, let's be honest, it's heavily curated. So there's some self-acceptance in, in there. There's a, also a need Here's the working memory failing me. I've completely lost what the question was. And you know, em- like, embracing our difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I think there's the the boldness of saying, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on. I don't like this. Doing that at work, you know, saying, actually, I don't understand. Being brave enough. Like one of the things when I work with, when I work with teams where we're doing a strategy day or a team day or something locked away in a room or wherever we are if you think of the meetings that we have at work there's a there's always people always hold back right and often when we're coming up with ideas we want our idea to be the one that gets adopted we want our idea to be perfectly formed and be wonderfully articulated so that it's the thing that gets taken up we want our idea to be great we're not often brave enough to put out the dumb ideas they say there's no such thing as a as a dumb question yes there is there's some really stupid questions but actually those stupid questions are the things that get us to better and so what we need to do in our organizations in terms of embracing difference is start with here's an exercise i like to do with executive teams is what i call start with stupid What's the dumbest thing we could do? What's the worst thing we could do? Like, just chuck out some ideas there. What's crazy? Uh, what will we not do? But, you know, you want to say, because often a lot of people leave meetings uh, where we've discussed some stuff, we've agreed and we've committed to doing some things. But what actually holds them back is the fact that they never said what they wanted to say because they, and they still have it unvalidated as to whether that would be useful or not. And so they go out of that meeting still thinking about, yeah, we could still do this, but no no one ever says that. Now in New Zealand, the most passive aggressive nation on the planet, we fear conflict. And so we don't suggest these sorts of things. And so we go along for the ride. And yet what we need to do is create, and I think this is the leadership prerogative or the, I guess the, the responsibility is to actually set up an environment, a culture within the team, not the organization, but within the particular team where it's all good to start canvassing some stupidity, to get something like, what is the stuff that's going to hold you back? What is, what's the question that you're fearful of asking because you're going to look like a dick? Like, let's be dicks. <laughs> Just didn't do that. Like, so that's, that's, that's the sort of stuff. Like also like, there's a playful element to it, but also there's a, let's just be real. Cause I, I actually don't understand this concept of being professional. Like I understand the rules of it, but I don't like it because we've got rid of the playfulness from our workplaces and it's just dull. <laughs> you know? So like, let's bring some life back in by, by being a little bit silly because I think silly and stupid and dumb and creative actually gets us to better ideas because no idea that the thing that gets invented is not the thing that was originally imagined, right? It gets tweaked by other people, gets added to, torn apart a little bit, whether that's a physical artifact that gets made or it was, you know, it's a concept or it's a something online. Like it's never the first idea that gets adopted. It's the thing that gets sort of teased out in an iterative process. 
And often starting with stupid means we get to clever or brilliant or genius even a lot quicker because we're not trying to be amazing. First go. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's a fantastic place to, to finish up on. I'm not sure which of those lines I'm going to use for the episode title yet, whether it's <laughs> start with stupid or let's be dicks. One of those two, I reckon. But Callum, Callum McCurdy, where can people find you if they want to want to know more about you? Well, there's always, there's always LinkedIn. I'm not that prolific on it, but that's there. So you could find me that way. Find me through my podcast, You, Me and ADHD. That's on YouTube, YouTube and Spotify and a few other places, but also at my website, which is just simply callummccurdy.com. Google that and you'll find me. Lots of people misspell my name, but it should get me there, get you there. Uh, anyway, check me out as well. And look, I just love to, I, I love connecting with people and hit me up for a chat or, you know, let's do whatever. But if people want to check me out that way, LinkedIn or on my website, callummccurdy.com. Yeah, we'll see people there, hopefully. Cool. Fantastic, Callum. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Oh, it's been brilliant. Thanks so much for, for chasing me up again in the invite. And it's been a real pleasure. I loved chatting. Thank you. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with us today. I always love these conversations. If you want to have a, hear a guest, if you want to have a topic explored, if you want to ask a question, please send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz uh, and we can get onto that for you. If you want to support the show, the best way that you can do that is subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure to share it out with some of your mates as well. Thank you to Health Mentors, the sponsor of the show today. If you want to improve your health and your performance in the middle of a chaotic world, make sure to check out healthmentors.nz or send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz for a no-obligation chat. Thank you so much to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music to the show. And thank you to you guys for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. We'll see you all again next week.